can we ever expect the world to change at the same way for everybody? I severely doubt that. So even, even if you project the future, who are you going to project it for? Are you going to project it for like the rich elite? Because they might live in space. They might have a space elevator. They might be vacationing in Mars or the moon. But there'll still be people here who are like starving to death. Are we already living in a science fiction world? And if so, is that world as shiny as we dreamed it would be? Saad Z. Hossein, a novelist who lives in Bangladesh, paints a gritty picture of the near future in a series of science fiction stories that are set in cities like Dhaka, Chittagong, and Kathmandu. Hossein's literary universe accentuates the divide that separates the social elite from the so-called zeros of society, and just to stir the pot, he throws in a tribe of jinns, or genies, from the world of ancient myth. Despite that element of fantasy, you could argue that Hossein's tales paint a more realistic vision of the world to come than, say, Star Trek. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast. Join me and my co-host, science fiction author Dominica Fediplace, as we talk with Saad Hossein about the present-day trends and technologies that inspire his latest novel, Kundo Wakes Up. It's not easy to put Saad Z. Hossein's novels into pigeonholes. Are they cyberpunk science fiction? High fantasy? Horror stories? Parables for our age of rapid climate change and social divisions? Maybe they're all of the above. Hossein envisions a world where networks of AI agents manage the economy, where humans host swarms of nanobots that are designed to keep the atmosphere from going haywire, and where islands of affluence coexist with wide swaths of society just trying to get by. Hossein's latest novel, Kundo Wakes Up, takes place in the Bangladeshi city of Chittagong and focuses on a quest by a disillusioned artist named Kundo to find out why his wife just up and disappeared one day. His search brings him into contact with a motley crew of characters, including a wise-cracking djinn. That's kind of like the genie in Aladdin, only closer to the supernatural beings in Arabian mythology who ended up inspiring the Disney movies. When Dominica Fediplace and I chatted with Saad Hossein over Zoom, we started out asking him to describe the universe in which his characters live and explain what that fictional universe has in common with the world we're living in. It's kind of a regular sci-fi uh, present to near future universe with, you know, you predict climate change, different technologies, whatever. And then you add jinns uh, to it, essentially. So what if jinns are real? But in a matter-of-fact kind of way, it's not a kind of horror-type gin. It's really kind of like, what if there were these guys just wandering around and they kind of coexisted with humans and they had their own culture and politics and whatever and history? I mean, for me, that's fun to write because then I can go in any direction I want. Where science fiction is maybe a bit restrictive if you're just going to talk about, you know, climate change or near future. Yeah, you gotta you gotta play around with it a bit more. And I assume that jinns are a big part of uh, the culture you grew up in. How, how did you latch on to jinns as a way to tell that story? Well, you know, like, because growing up, I mean, most of my education was in English. And then, so, so it was like we were reading Norse mythology and, and Greek mythology and Tolkien. And, uh, and when I was writing, I, I was basically like, I need something 
kind of more a mythology that's attuned to our culture, like to, to my own native culture. And uh, jinns happen to be everywhere. Yeah. Uh, because in the Quran, actually, it mentions jinn. So, so jinn is, for many people who are believers, it's, it's a fact. It's not a, it's not mythology even. It's not legend. It's not a, a sort of fairy story. These are real, as, as real as uh, anything else. So that was interesting to me. And then uh, they are the big uh, mythical creature of our culture, uh, as fairies are to the to kind of Europe or uh, dwarves and you know giants to Norse mythology. So uh, yeah, it's something we should use. This was such a funny and weird book. It was like a mashup of science fiction and fantasy and horror. And on the science fiction end, it was like a blend of dystopian and like utopian concepts like on the utopian end you have uh some geoengineering with climate change and like a digital currency uh called karma and then the dystopian end you have this whole class of people that are called zeros because they don't really matter so i would really just love to hear more about uh the city you currently reside in and how that influenced your book you know, I think right now, I mean, all over the world, and, and especially in Dhaka, actually, you have these pockets of places which are ultra luxurious and uh, absolutely beautiful to live in. And, and you have everything you need uh, from, you know, climate control to luxury cars, world class buildings, all, all of this stuff, you know, restaurants, fancy restaurants, clubs, alcohol, whatever you want. And then, of course, there's large parts which are in comparison, completely unlivable. And you would imagine that how do people actually survive in these conditions, you know, with the given, the heat, the mosquitoes, the monsoon. And so there are these pockets of utopian places and dystopian places. That's normal, I think. I mean, I, I don't think that's unusual. I think all over the world you have that, right? Like in LA, you know, you have amazing parts of the city and then you have the kind of homeless 10,000 tents, right? And they're right next to each other. And you're kind of like... How does that happen? Even? Yeah. Well, why is there such a big inequality? But I think that's the kind of world we live in where it's almost, it's very unusual to have it the other way. It's unusual to have a purely dystopian place because even in any, any kind of hellscape, there's always winners. There's always people who accumulate resources, who, who make life better for themselves, even for a small area. So I, I think I'm reflecting kind of what, what I see in reality, and uh, something that maybe is not acknowledged enough, right? Um, the idea is kind of like, okay, it's great Western cities, everything is great, first world, and these uh, horrible Southern cities, let's say global South cities, are dirty and disgusting and, and third world. But then, of course, in those cities you have, and people who visit are always surprised, you have enormously wealthy idea, uh, areas where, where there's absolutely luxurious you know settings and then of course in the western cities also you have like terrible areas where the people are, are suffering and poor so it it's uh, that's how it is really. that's so true um i also like how uh this book addresses climate change and also the the previous one the gurkha and the lord of tuesday and I'm curious to know how you're thinking about climate change and putting it into your work, especially considering that Bangladesh is expected to be one of the first places where rising sea levels are going to have a big impact. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we're in climate change right now. I mean, most people, I think, agree that the the kind of prevention phase is gone. Now it's, you're in it, try and mitigate it. And it's happening quicker than we, we know. So I think all writing now has to kind of reflect this, right? In a way, it's, it's kind of like after World War II, you have to reflect the new reality of post-World War II. Uh, you couldn't just be like, well, I'm just going to carry on like it's, you know, 1935. You can't. The world has radically changed, right? So whatever you say, now the world has radically changed and we expect there'll be mass casualties or mass loss of wealth. We also expect some areas will become richer, will profit from this. So I think everybody kind of has to put this into account. Otherwise, you kind of miss kind of the vitality of the times because we are dealing with unprecedented crisis. And that's also an exciting time to look at it, uh, to, to live, to write about, to try and solve these problems. You know, it's not it's not only negative. I mean, when there's a great challenge, there's also, you know, an opportunity to do something. There's a, you can, new technologies, new ways of looking at stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we're seeing in Dhaka or in Bangladesh, small scale, low cost innovations, which are, just improving lives daily uh, without being a big thing, without getting a prize or without, you know, just small incremental changes that are just making it more efficient. So hopefully, you know, we do get some positives out of this. Uh, but uh, writing-wise also, I mean, it, if exciting things happen, the writing is better. So if you're living in exciting times or times of change, the writing should be better. We've heard from other novelists that uh, every novel nowadays has to be a climate novel because that does reflect how we see and how we experience the world. There are other technologies that make their appearance in Kundo Wakes Up, uh, like artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, immersive gaming. These are all a big part of the backstory. Can you talk about the process of weaving those technologies into your tales? Because it's a near future story, all I'm doing is kind of extending what already exists in certain fields, right? Like in terms of artificial intelligence, for me, it seems clear that eventually artificial intelligence will take over running of boring things, right? So like airplanes, ships, transportation systems, ports, all of these things where you don't really need humans to do anything. I mean, it's just like Tetris, right? Or whatever. At the same time, if we apply it to governance, I think governance is now extremely difficult for, for individuals to deal with because there's too many issues. They're too complex. It, for any little change, you have to protest days on end. And I think at some point you would be like, okay, we want governance to become automated. You know, I, I personally wouldn't mind that. I mean, if, if, if we voted on, let's say, we want 82% of our tax income to go into welfare, and then we had an automated system just running that. That would be way better than a bunch of politicians like playing around with your money. So I'm thinking we're getting to a point where we're basically going to vote in artificial intelligence as a way of just checks and balances. Forget about Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals. We don't want, we don't want to deal with all these issues and this heartache. We're just going to vote in the artificial intelligence and let's let them get on with it, you know? So Maybe I, in I 2024, that... it'll be uh, artificial intelligence versus the giant meteor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 
some people would vote for the media probably, you know. I think it's a natural progression here. You know, I think you give up more and more of your your life to smart systems. Uh, so why not governance? I mean, what do you, what do you really, are you really affecting your own government in any way? Uh, lots of people would probably say no. It doesn't seem to matter who you put in power. They do what they want anyways at the end. So there's that. The gaming part, I mean, I'm, a, I'm actually a gamer. Like, I love gaming. I, I game with my kids. I mean, I'm, I play with my friends all the time. So this is something I know really well. And for me, I think that what you're heading towards is really immersive gaming to a point where you will have these guys who are like, put me in a coma. I just want to live in the game world. Because you got people spending real money in here. You're, they're spending hundreds of hours in here to a point where their game assets are much more than their real life assets. And I, and I know people like that. You know, they have in the game, there's some awesomely powerful character with like thousands of dollars worth of digital stuff. But in real life, you know, they're kind of living out of a suitcase somewhere, just, you know, with a laptop, whatever, and not really doing too well. So, I mean, if both options are valid, why wouldn't you pick the game? And on the nanotechnology front, one of the things I picked up on is that apparently uh, humans, some humans are used for nanobot farming. Tell me a little bit more about that angle. Okay, so, so the idea was that, so at this point, the technology is kind of biomolecules. And, uh, and, and you need this, this nanotech in the air, which is clean the air, kind of make life livable, create like a kind of climate bubble around a, a microclimate around a, 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 let's say a city or a whatever. And so rather than trying to build these from machines, they basically have devised a way where the human body builds them. And that's kind of your tax, right? So you live in the microclimate and what you exhale is, is partly nanotech. So your body's, part of your body's uh, own systems are just making this. And uh, it's, it's, everybody's contributing to this system which is keeping you alive, essentially, keeping bad nanotech at bay, keeping disease at bay, controlling the temperature, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that seems like an elegant solution, right? As opposed to a completely mechanical system, which is trying to do the same thing. And it's also like, it's a kind of uh, contribution that anybody can make. So the poorer you are, the more nanotech you have to make, the less of your own body you own, in a way. Fascinating. In the blurb for an earlier novel of yours, Cybermage, I was tickled to see Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk described as moguls. That's a word with rich meaning, I think, for South Asians. Do you see parallels between today's billionaire moguls and the moguls of old? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, absolute power in, in, in many ways, right? And, uh, and these guys have, have a degree of power which uh, even established older families of, of wealthy uh, or even kings don't. And, and the kind of question of power is that, can you suddenly decide to go to space? I mean, that's, a, that's the kind of, you know, that's my litmus test. Of, you know, Queen of England, one of the most powerful people in the world, can she decide to go to space suddenly? No. <laughs> no way, right? Even the, the Saudi uh, king, one of the wealthiest men and, and an actual ruler, an absolute ruler. But if he de declared that we're going to sell everything and go to space tomorrow... I don't think he'd be in power for very long. Yet, Musk easily is like, we're going to go to Mars. I'm going to put all our money into Mars. Bezos, same thing. So these guys have a degree of autonomy and power, which is kind of almost unheard of. 
And uh, it's only comparable to really like the, the kind of conquering empire builders, you know, who, who had that kind of freedom to say, okay, we're going to do this no matter what. And, and I don't see too many amongst the wealthy elite in the world today who, who even have that kind of decision-making authority because they have to still answer to their board or to family members or, you know, to their constituencies. So, yeah, their power is quite staggering, actually. This book, it has a really rich world and it's a world that takes place across several of your books and you have several recurring characters. Um, so I'm curious about uh, your writing process for this book and also where you're going to take it in the next book. When I'm feeling uh, funny, then I write a funny book. And when I'm feeling violent, I write a violent book. And then when I'm feeling sad, I write a sad book. What comes next is really kind of what kind of emotions I want to express and then what kind of story, you know, whether it's a big story or a small story. So it's this book had of, so many different emotions in it. How would you describe <laughs> it? I, I feel this, that Kundo was was the smallest story in, in terms of the, the implications. And it was a really personal kind of about one single character and his really his, his personal journey, not so much his effect on the world. And I felt it was also maybe the, the kind of most... I wouldn't say depressing, but the, the most uh, introspective, maybe, and, and, and uh, dealing with loss. So kind of loss and sad, a little bit of uh, what do you do when things fall apart? I wouldn't expect the next one to be similar, you know, because uh, you, you kind of, it's not planned. Uh, it's not planned. When, it, when, when I feel the urge to write something boisterous, then uh, that's what comes. So that's why the, the stories are not, they're tenuously linked, same world, but they're not sequels or prequels, you know, like they're not actually following the same character through through a bunch of uh, adventures. It's basically standalone, but they're connected. And because and, I want to keep building on the world, I want to add layers to the world, which, you know, uh, make the, the next story richer because you know a little bit more. And do you know what's coming next? Uh, no, no, I have no idea. Uh, I want to I want to do a character that's kind of a half refugee character simply because that's kind of what's resonating, uh, of course, with the Ukrainians, but also with in in Bangladesh we have the Burmese refugees. Uh, there's like millions of them uh, that were pushed out from Myanmar, and then of course in Middle East and uh, Africa and so on. I think with climate change we're going to have more refugee problems, so I want to kind of have a character where and not in a traditional refugee story where you're being pummeled and I'm trying to show, you know, you're trying to show uh, what ordeals the refugees are having in a realistic story, but more, more as a, I want to empower a, a refugee character. So I want to take a character with like really nothing and I want to kind of build them up and make them heroic and powerful and uh, kind of reverse that trend as a consolation. So uh, I just have a kind of vague character in mind, but but we'll see how it goes. I also really admired like all the jokes. Like it, it was so funny. I don't I don't really even want to spoil it. So how do you deploy humor as a storytelling device? I mean, I think you have to have humor. I mean, you owe, you owe it to the readers. It doesn't matter if the book is good or serious, or it has to be enjoyable. I, I feel right. Like it has to be worth reading. You can't you can't force somebody into reading something that's worthy and, and then be like, but it's, you're going to have a horrible time reading it, you know? So, and for me, I mean, 
humor is universal. Uh, it's also a way of dealing with problems, right? So, so black humor is kind of one of the best ways of dealing with loss and trouble, uh, whatever tragedy. So I also want my characters to, to have that. I, I want them to be realistic in some ways. And the other thing of humor is that you have to kind of let the story off the leash to create areas where you can have humor. Because humor in, in writing, for me at least, it comes almost uh, accidentally. Uh, if, you know, if you're sticking to a tight dialogue, you don't have space for humor because humor costs you space and, and it costs you time to develop a situation where something's funny. So in that way, it's also makes your story a bit more meandering in a way, uh, which I enjoy because it's more fun writing that, you know, writing to a strict outline is really boring for me. I, I hate it. I, I could never finish anything like that. So for me, in a way, it's kind of finding out, okay, we'll let you breathe a little bit and then see if something funny happens. So our, our listeners can't see, but you have this giant bookshelf behind you. Uh, and so I'm really curious about uh, who some of your favorite authors are and who some of the writers are that inspire you. Uh, well, okay. So, so I never read Asimov before, but right now I, I just started reading Foundation and I've just been zipping through it. So I love uh, sci-fi, you know, fantasy. Those are kind of my go-to things. So, you know, I read like, you know, all the like Tolkien and uh, Martin, you know, Lord of the Rings and uh, uh, Wheel of Time and, you know, all the, all the stuff like that. But uh, Malazan, I mean, Eric, Stephen Erickson's a great fantasy writer, a big fan of his. But uh, I also love classics because the, the library we have actually it's got my grandfather's books and my uncle's books and my mom's books. So my books are, are recent, like when I could start like about 20 years or so when I could like uh, afford to buy books. But when I was a kid, I used to read whatever my mom had. So, uh, you know, I read a lot of Regency romances, Georgette Hare, Jane Austen was my favorite, was, is still one of my favorite authors. I mean, I find her hilarious. She's, she's just awesome, you know, and of course, Pride and Prejudice, but uh, Persuasion is my favorite. I love Persuasion. There was a time, I mean, I would read anything because we really didn't have internet that much. Uh, and this is when I was a kid, like seven, eight, you know, nine when I started reading. And, and the books were just, that was the escape. So I'll read anything. I mean, I, I don't really have a preference. I'll, I, I like romance novels. I like adventure novels. I love Agatha Christie. I love murder mysteries. So, uh, you know, as long as the characters are good, I'm, I'm, I'm down for it, you know. I, I love genre of all kinds. I mean, uh, as long as it's not boring, I'm, I'm great. Because I, I use it to escape. I mean, I, I just swallow books whole, you know. I'm not trying to underline things and look at themes and deeper meaning. I just want to live in the story. It strikes me that uh, the classic science fiction of old looked at the 21st century as this wild science fiction world where all our technological dreams would come true. And that's the sort of thing that you write about. Uh, do you feel as if this is a science fiction world we're living in or some strange fantasy world that is more like a dystopia than a utopia? Uh, I'm really interested in hearing how you as a writer see the progression of the world that surrounds us. Well, see, it's the thing that there are pockets which are, which are science fiction, which are really far in the future, right? There are pockets of this world in some of the great cities and some of the really wealthy places where 
you know, if you took somebody from the 18th century and then you brought them there, they would feel like, okay, this is really science fiction. I mean, this is what we thought. You guys have like computers in your hands. You're driving insane cars. You're going to space. You're for holidays. You know, you're you're living in astronomically expensive glass towers. You're getting everything delivered to you by drone. You know, like there are aspects of this. But then there's also Stone Age parts of the universe where people don't have water and they're trying to walk two miles for dirty water. So you have that as well. And and uh, I think that the f- fallacy in thinking is always that the whole world is going to change at the same rate at the same time. It only really changes for the elite. It really only changes for the educated. And a big number will always get left behind. So a utopia has to be tempered with that idea that you don't really have progress without disparity. The progress is never spread out like that, right? Like progress comes in leaps, which means that only some people will get it. And then a vast number of people will be left behind. Uh, And that sounds like a bad thing, but I wonder whether that's not inevitable. It's not whether the opposite of that might be stagnation, where you just don't have any change. I mean, of course, philosophically, you would want everybody to have everything. You, you want everybody to have computers and cell phones. And, and to some degree, you do. Because now we have in, in Bangladesh, we have farmers using the internet to check prices and weather forecasts. You know, because they have like cheap phones and they have cheap internet. So it does come. But there's a big, big difference between somebody in a Upper East Side mansion in Manhattan and a farmer. Even though they're, they're both using the internet and the phone. Can we ever expect the world to change at the same way for everybody? I severely doubt that. So even, even if you project the future, who are you going to project it for? Are you going to project it for like the rich elite? Because they might live in space. They might have a space elevator. They might be vacationing in Mars or the moon. But there'll still be people here who are like starving to death. Yeah, it's like uh, William Gibson, uh, the science fiction author, said, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. Yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> yeah. I love Gibson. I think I actually stole, yeah, I think I think part of my thinking is stolen from him because I love Gibson. He's one of my favorites. And uh, especially the pattern recognition was one of the books he wrote, which I just love. I mean, it's one of my favorite books. He's hard science fiction, but he's also not like, he's also about kind of social science fiction in a way. He kind of looks at like trends of like how people would behave and uh, not necessarily like hard tech about like, you know, what kind of weapons are we going to have? Right. For me, that's like kind of the juvenile type of science fiction where it's like spaceships, weapons. What's the hyperdrive going to look like? You know, fine. We, you know, that's nostalgic and that's lovely for for all of us because we we all have space opera when we're growing up. But there's other stuff to look at in science fiction, which are right now to me, as I get older, much more interesting. Right. Like, how does it affect? communities or how does it affect the mind how, how, how does it affect society in a in a gentler way right how does behavior change according to, to technology you know not necessarily oh we have big spaceships we're gonna all go zooming around why uh, why would you leave earth why would you if you have all this great tech why would you go colonize somewhere far away where you're gonna die yeah i mean gibson's absolutely right and gibson's uh, gibson's great I think the issue with him, though, is he's he's also just applying his craft to a, the developed world, where the differences are smaller, and 
as you get further away from that to kind of less developed parts of the world, the differences are very large. Where you have a palatial compound, literally palatial, next to a terrible slum. And the people in the slum are actually literally the servants of the people in the palace or the, the compound. And that's very common. So it's almost like during the day they're wearing uniforms and they're all prim and proper and they're cleaning your house or cooking your food or, you know, whatever, driving your car. And then at night they're going home and they're living in literally like a bamboo house or something. And it's no running water, no, no electricity, nothing. Uh, and terrible, crowded, dirty, uh, no latrines. So this is not far-fetched. I mean, this is, this is a reality in, in many places. And then when you see that all the time, you kind of accept that as like, okay, this is actually reality. Well, I love that term, social science fiction. And I have a feeling that as the years go on, people are going to point to Saad C. Hossein as a great example of social science fiction. I hope it's a trend that takes hold. Thank you so much, Saad, for your time. And, and best of luck with your book and with the other things that will be coming from your literary universe. Thank you guys so much for doing this. I appreciate it a lot. And uh, yeah, I hope you had a good time. Check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com for more about Kundo Wakes Up and Sadzi Hossein's other novels, including Cyber Mage and Jin City, which are set in Dhaka, and The Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday, which takes place in Kathmandu. You'll also find links to some of the other books on Saad's reading list. While you're online, check out DominicaFetaPlace.com. Don't worry about the spelling. Just follow the link from the Cosmic Log item. Thanks to Saad Hossein and Tor.com for the interview. And thanks to James Emley for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.